This is the Made It in Music podcast. I'm Seth Mosley, and this is show 158. Welcome to the podcast, where we bring you tools and resources to help you go full time in music and to stay in. The music business is a roller coaster ride, changing faster than any of us can pay attention to. We all need a competitive edge to stay ahead and to stay successful. What's working, what isn't, and what's coming? That's exactly what this show is all about. Back again with Full Circle Music, the Made It in Music podcast. What's up? This is Seth Mosley, and you are on the Made It in Music podcast. We've got an amazing one for you today. This is my new friend, Stevie Aiello, who is the music director and bassist for the band 30 Seconds to Mars, one of my favorite rock bands. And... um, so much good stuff we're going to be getting into today, but before we dive in, did want to uh, make a little bit of a request of you guys if you're listening. If you've been enjoying the Made It in Music podcast, we'd love to hear your feedback, and leaving us a review is one of the best ways to reach out. So at Full Circle Music, our goal is to serve as many people as we can, and your reviews can help us to do that at an even larger scale. So if you can take just a few minutes, go to Apple Podcasts or whatever your favorite podcast platform is, leave us a review. It really does help us grow. And we're so grateful for all of you who have already done so, already left us a review. We we do read each and every one of them and would love to hear your feedback and uh, what you think we can improve. So take a second, hit pause, go do that. We appreciate it. So today we've got, like I said, Stevie Aiello. Stevie, thanks so much for being on the show today. What's up, Seth? How you doing, man? Thanks for having me. Oh man, I'm 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 honored that you would come on. I I uh, I love love your band. First of all, I have to always just get the fanboy moment out there on the front end. <laughs> um, one of my favorite rock bands. So let's let's dive into your story a little bit. Where did your love of songwriting? Well, let's just say music. Where did your love of music initially come from? Yeah, I think uh, for me, it was the fact that my dad told me that he started playing, I believe, guitar and trumpet when he was younger, and he was always disappointed that he never followed through with it. So it's one of those weird father-son moments where you're like, I'm going to take this on, you know, and I'm going to continue that journey, and I'm going to take this to where I think it can go. Um, And I think that was the first um starting point for me and the first like jolt of inspiration because for me no, no one in my family plays instruments um at least in my immediate family there were other cousins and uncles and stuff like that but it wasn't like everyone was gathering around a piano during christmas time and singing songs where you get that inspiration for me it was all about that story with my dad and um yeah it started probably when i was in fourth or fifth grade and uh, i started on the trumpet And then I realized by sixth grade that that wasn't how you become cool. And uh, I'm still not cool, by the way, but I started playing guitar in sixth grade and that kind of kicked off my journey. I love it. So between somewhere between sixth grade and whenever you started your own band was Monty. All right. Did you, was that a band that you started? Was that like your first uh, full, full fledged uh, artist career move? Yeah, you know, when you're younger, you start these little bands um, and you just play with guys that you're 
I guess, in, in class with. And I had a couple of really pivotal people in my life during that time that introduced me to all different kinds of music from more of the rock stuff, soul, um, classic oldies, comedy albums, even outside of music. And, uh, yeah, one of my good friends, Joe Rulo, uh, back from where I grew up in Rhode Island, he was like a, a big, big part of my, my musical upbringing. And we had a couple of bands together. And then as I grew older, we kind of, uh, we stopped playing music together. And that's when I, things kind of grew into me forming Monty R.I. with some other friends that I had grown up with. And it was five of us. We lived a few streets down from each other. And we started probably when I was I don't know, 15 or 16. And we did that for 10 years. That's awesome. And, and maybe just, you know, for, for those who aren't familiar with the band, I mean, you, you guys had had gotten to a pretty pretty successful scale. Can you just share maybe what, what your journey in that was like? Sure. Yeah. Like anything, I think it starts off with passion and you're playing the kind of music you love for us. It was, we're band geeks. It was during the ska era. So we started kind of in that world, the punk world. Um, but it, but it really started maturing over time. And by the time I, I hit like 19 or 20, we were doing more, I don't know, just more advanced versions of that and less of the goofy fun stuff and more serious, you know, your songwriting develops, you have different experiences in life and that kind of changes everything. So for us, um, yeah, it, it kind of, it grew a little darker, a little heavier, a little bit more advanced. Um, and we basically, when everyone started going to college, we would come in every weekend and continue to play gigs. So we would fly one guy in from DC you know, I would drive in from Boston. A couple of the guys would come in from Connecticut, load up the van and, and play every weekend. We'd play two or three gigs and then we'd go back to college. And this was during 19, 20, 21. And finally I decided, you know, I don't want to be in school anymore. It's actually a hindrance to the, to the progress of the band. So we, we dove in, we doubled down, um, rented a house and did the thing that bands do and throw parties and write music and that was kind of the formation of 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 us really, I think, crafting song, the songwriting thing and and learning what it is we want to say. And eventually, we just kept working and working and working, booking our own tours. I don't even know if bands still do that anymore. Um, we slowly gained a following while MySpace was happening. And then eventually, I wrote a Hail Mary letter to the guys over at Ernie Ball who were running a stage at Warp Tour in 2000 and two or three and said, Hey, there's nothing we can provide you right now, but I guarantee you we're going to be successful. And in the long run, we will continue to play your products till the day we die. We just ask that you throw us on some shows and they put us on, I believe 27 to 30 shows on warp tour that year. And that kind of started everything for us because we were able to sell 5,000 copies of our EP. And then that got the attention of Rob Stevenson, who is at uh, Island Def Jam music. And we signed a deal with him. Uh, he started an imprint label under the IDJ arm. And Rob was significant because he had signed The Killers. He had signed Fall Out Boy. And he had a lot of success there during those years. So it was very exciting for us. And that kind of kicked off my professional music career. That's, that's awesome. And, and the whole time, I mean, you've been, you've been a songwriter from, from the beginning of that. Or was that sort of something that you evolved into or, you know, in, in rock bands, I guess it's a little different. You're everybody, the rock band is, is typically like writing their own songs as opposed to like with, with pop or top 40, it's, it's, you know, with co-writers and stuff. How, how did, how did 
your songwriting journey kind of kick off? Yeah, I did a, the bulk of the songwriting in the band. Um, but what was unique about my experience, I say this a lot. Um, I felt like I was always writing for the band. Um, as opposed to, I do think there were some times where my personality heavily aligned with what the band was doing, but it was interesting. I think that's how I perceived it. I would always look at it as writing for the artist, writing for my, for my band. Um, cause I think it helped, I don't know, it did something weird. It like separated me from, from what it was a little bit. And I was thinking about what other people were playing on stage, which I think a lot of bands tend to do. So sometimes that does not make for good songwriting because you're like the drummer's going to get bored let's add a second bridge where he can do something weird you know and and yeah. sometimes it doesn't make any sense um and for us it was all about pushing it to 11 so how many things can be going on at once controlled chaos essentially and um so yeah i i kind of i took the reins on that one but uh it was it was interesting because looking back I think that helped me um, in terms of looking at songwriting as writing for my own band. Because as you know, um, nowadays in my songwriting career, it's, it's, you have to put yourself in the, the driver's seat for artists that you're working with or artists that you're pitching to. So I think that um, however that happened, it happened. And I think it was very uh, beneficial for my songwriting career now at this point. That's awesome. And you, you mentioned me the other day too, it, it, did it, did it start off with, um, being signed by razor and tie music publishing? Is that who, who you're with as a songwriter? I was years ago. Um, that was outside of Monty RI. That was my first publishing deal as a songwriter. And that was kind of the beginning of my official songwriting journey. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I never signed a publishing deal as an artist, hmm. which was something at the time I was very, um, upset about and bummed about and I wanted to do it and there were things that happened that led me not to make that decision ultimately I think it was it was a good one in some ways um but of course when you start your songwriting journey you're like I am not legitimate until I get my publishing deal and so for a year after I left the band I was working towards becoming a legitimate songwriter course i mean looking back it's kind of ridiculous but there is something to be said for accomplishing that goal and feeling like you've done it you've made it you know now i'm a real songwriter so um yeah that was the beginning of my official songwriting journey that's awesome man and um so yeah let's let's fast forward a little bit how did you end up with the opportunity to uh join the band 30 seconds to mars yeah so um Basically, in 2013, I had been signed to Razor and Tie for about a year and a half at that point. And the woman who signed me there, there were two people that signed me. It was a woman named Be Becca Tischker and this guy named Peter Lloyd, who are both a big part of my lives now. Um, and Becca manages Julia Michaels currently, and she also owns her own management company and publishing company. And Peter works at Disney Music, and he also has a bunch of different other ventures that he's involved in. Um, but Becca was basically like, I'm going to sign you here, and then I'm going to go to California. I'm you know, essentially heading up Dr. Luke's publishing company. And at the time, Dr. Luke was the biggest name in songwriting with all the Katy Perry stuff. And um, 
million other things. Yeah. So basically whatever Becca says I do, and she moved to California and she called me six months later and she said, if you want to do this songwriting thing for real, you have to move to LA. So I was like, okay, great. So I booked a writing trip, found an apartment and came back to New York and, and told my then girlfriend, Hey, we're moving to LA, you down. <laughs> and that's what we did. And of course, you know, being just a, a few weeks here, it's LA. This stuff always happens as cliche as it sounds. I was going to a recording studio that my previous band had recorded in Monty RI had recorded in here in Los Angeles. And I was going to visit our old producer just to say hello. And, uh, I walked in the room and randomly the prior guitarist in the band, uh, he was there and we had a mutual friend and my friend called me up the next day and he said, Hey, I was talking to the guitar player. His name is Tomo. And, uh, do you want to go and, you know, rehearse with the guys they need, they're looking for a bassist, a keyboard player, a hired guy just to come in and, and go tour with them. And I was like, yeah, I can play bass. Sure. Why not? You know, I wasn't going to say no to any opportunity at that point. I just moved to LA and, uh, that was the beginning of the whole, the whole thing. That's awesome. So, I mean, I guess there was, I'm sure there was some sort of a, uh, was there like a formal audition process or how, how did, how did that whole thing work? Yeah, it was, it was pretty crazy. Um, it, it, it was a formal, uh, audition process for about a month and I had no idea what was going on. I mean, here's the thing. When I moved to LA, it was for songwriting. I had done my band stuff for 10 years. I'd been with the same five guys. It was an awesome experience. I loved it, but I was completely done with it. And it was funny because I, I talked to my manager at the time and I said, look, man, I don't want to be in a band anymore. I'm done. Like it was great, but I don't want to do it unless <laughs> I'm touring around the world. I'm playing in front of 40,000 people a night and I'm, you know, making X amount of dollars. I was like, cause at that point it's worth it. But if it's not that, like I'm, my heart's not in it. And if your heart's not in it, there's no point in doing it. Right. So for me, it was just like, I, I was done with that part of my life. And when this opportunity came up, I, I thought, okay, just say yes, go in the room, meet people. It's going to be fun. Like at the very least you get to play some music with some other musicians. And I really respect the band, of course. And so I thought this could be cool. So I just went in no big deal and just played and, and I got into it pretty hard for a full month. I was like rocking out, going hard. And I didn't really even play keys either at the time. Um, so I had to kind of think about how they were going to set up their keyboards and I was able to practice that at home because basically um, the way our keyboard system works now, my top keyboard is all sample based and the bottom is a live VST. So I kind of had to think, okay, how would they be able to launch all these heavy samples in the song? Um, and so I kind of had to think about how that would happen. That's how I practiced. So I was a little bit prepared when I went in, but I still, I wasn't a keyboard player. Um, but yeah, we rehearsed for about a month. I didn't have a car at the time, so I made bagged lunches every day and I walked a mile to the bus stop and I took the bus from where I live 45 minutes into Hollywood and some days I'd show up and the crew would be like, ooh, no one told you that rehearsal got canceled, huh? And I'd be like, damn. So I'd, <laughs> I'd have to go back home. But it was great. The days I would show up, you know, I'm Italian American. So all my lunches have tons of olive oil on them. So the, ba <laughs> the bag shows up and it's see-through Yeah. and these guys would be like, what, did you just roll in with like a bagged lunch? And I was like, yeah. And I think that was, I think that actually helped me in the process. Cause they were like, all right, this guy is, <laughs> he's doing whatever he can to, to make this work. And he's coming fully prepared. 
So they saw they saw the passion in that. What you, you mentioned that that's really interesting. So it was kind of effectively like a month long audition process. Yeah, it was a month long. And like I said, I didn't really know what was happening because other guys were rehearsing as well during my time there. Um, and I think one of the things that helped me, and this could probably be beneficial to your audience, I was not above this job in any way. But like I said, my heart was in songwriting. I really respected the band, but it wasn't like I'm moving to LA and I'm going to be you know, in a band again. That was not where my heart was. And I think that actually helped me in the process because a lot of people I saw come in and out of the room, no judgment to them, but I noticed that you could tell it's that LA thing. They wanted it and it showed. And I think, um, it, it kind of makes people a little bit uncomfortable and not natural. And I think in these situations, it's so much less about the music and your ability to play. Everyone's good. Everyone's incredible. I think it's all about the hang and if the personalities mix. And that's okay if they don't. You don't have to be right for every situation. I'm certainly not. But it just so happens that that in this situation, it all kind of worked. And, and I think it was because it, it wasn't something I was desperate for. It was something that kind of came natural. Even I, like I said, I didn't necessarily want to do this when I first came, but as time went on, I was like, oh, this could be sick. And then finally the day came and they were like, you're either in or you're out because we're going on tour for two years. And I was like, I just started crying. It's like, no. But it's been great since then. That's awesome. So, man, you touched on some of this already, but I'd love to just dive into it a little deeper. What what does it take to make it as a touring musician? You obviously mentioned you got, you got to be a good hang, but you know, what what are some of the skills, mentalities, mindsets um, that it takes to make it as a touring musician? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, quick side note: sorry to interrupt you, but if this is too loud, if there's too much noise, let me know out there. No, you're good. I, I I'll move. can't can't hear anything anyway, so you're 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 clean. Okay, gotcha. So. Uh, what it takes to become a touring musician. Um, this is just my experience. Everyone's experience is different. Um, but I think it's interesting, you know, uh, people look at their lives in sections. I, I know I do. So I look at my former band, Monty R.I., and what we did. I stopped doing that because we had put two records out on Universal and it wasn't going to where I wanted it to go. So some could see that as a failure. I think at times in my life, maybe I did, but, but in a lot of ways, it's interesting when I just made that decision to not do it anymore. I just, I had no problems letting go and I moved on. Um, and I think, uh, getting back to the failure thing, some, some could see it as a failure. I didn't see it as that. I saw it as preparation. So I think for a lot of touring musicians, um, I do think spending time on the road um, when you're younger, sleeping on floors, I don't think you need to do that. And I know a lot of people who haven't done that. I'm not like one of those guys who's like, yeah, man, you got to really put your hours in. But I do think that it is extremely helpful because I think the overarching theme of it is it's stressful. You're put in stressful situations and you have to figure out how to deal with it. You know, uh, your van overheats and you're in the Mojave Desert. You get T-boned in Columbia, Missouri by another car. Um, you know, you ran out of merch. You don't have enough money to resupply your merch. Um, 
you need to work with other people in order to accomplish a goal. So communication comes, comes into play a lot too. How you communicate with other people, how you lead, how you motivate. Um, you know, those are things I even struggled with, you know. Um, but as the years go on, you learn and you adapt and you take that with you. So I think those are some key things that help musicians uh, who want to be, become professional touring musicians. You know, I, I really go back to the playing thing too. It, it's so fascinating to me because the best players out there are never going to get on that stage. It could be fear. It could be social skills. It could be so many things, um, but everyone is good. And when you're in a place like Nashville or Los Angeles, everyone's good, you know, so they're better than you. So you have to somehow outwork them or outsmart, you know, be smarter than everyone else or, or have something in your pocket. And I think people, people skills are a big part of that, you know, how to, how to lead a team. And I think that's kind of crossed over into the music director world as well. Is um, that, I, are those things something that you kind of just naturally had, or do you feel like you, 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 you had some moments of lessons learned and just how to, how to kind of be a leader to, to interact with people or is, has that just been something that's kind of come naturally to you? Um, no, it do doesn't come naturally to me and I'm still learning uh, about how to do it better. I want to learn more about it. Um, I'm considering taking classes in leadership too, because I think it's really important. Um, but no, I've definitely made mistakes for sure. I've taken on too much responsibility in the past. I haven't learned how to properly delegate. And I think, uh, looking at either a, a band leader role or a music director role, those are things that are really important. And then looking back to 30 seconds to Mars, I think that's something that Jared is extremely good at, um, in the organization. You know, if he sees someone who can take the rock and run with it, he's going to give it to that person. I think that's why my relationship within the band has kind of worked because like I said, the band's been going on for 20 years, you know, Jared and Shannon have been doing this for so long and I stepped into their world and, um, it's been really cool. I'm super grateful for that too, because I, I am that guy. I want to be given responsibility and then turn it into something and create something with you, you know? So I, I that helps in songwriting that helps in music director, um, but no, I've definitely had to learn the hard way in order to learn about this stuff. I love it. Let's talk a little bit about the music director side of things. Was, was that part of the deal when you were kind of signed up for the band or was that something that you sort of grew into? Oh, it's something I grew into. Um, when I first started with 30 seconds, you know, strictly, I mean, hired bass player come in. Uh, musician, keyboardist, just come in, play. That's it. And it was amazing. <laughs> I got to say, it was really nice to just have that on my plate. And, and it, it was great. Um, and as time went on, it was kind of interesting. I, I think one of the first things that, that changed that relationship was a, the fact that I was working on music all the time on the road. So I think, you know, people see you doing that and they're like, Oh, wonder what that guy's doing. Um, there was that. And then also, I think in my, the first year that I was with the guys, I had a song come out by this band star set called my demons that started to chart on the, uh, I think active rock or alternative and 30 seconds to Mars had a song come out during that time that was also charting. And the songs were kind of near each other. 
And I remember walking out of my dressing room one day and, uh, <laughs> I was like laughing and I think Jared walked by me and he was like, what are you, what are you laughing about? I was like, Oh, the song I, um, I wrote is like on the charts and he just like took the thing from me and it was like our 30 seconds to Mars and star set songs next to each other. And I was like, did I just totally like, am I going to get fired? What, what kind of move was that? That was stupid. I didn't mean to do it of course, but, but he, he was actually really uh, sweet about it and was encouraging and was like, that's awesome. Um, that's cool that you've written this song. And I think that was kind of the beginning where they realized that I was, I, I did more than just, you know, play, play guitar and so um, after that, I was asked a couple of times if I would track Jared's vocals for some projects we were doing. One was a cover of the uh, Mickey Echo Rihanna song, Stay. And I said, yeah, sure. So I started tracking his vocals and, and putting the vocal stuff together and working on the track for the, that song, Stay. And that kind of just snowballed into me working in the studio, working on songs with the band. And then eventually when we start to go on tour in 2017, it was like, oh, we need to take this stuff from the studio and apply it live. So I was the person that I think made the most sense to kind of fulfill that role. And, and they asked me if I would, if I would do that. And, and yeah, that was the beginning. I love that. For, for people who maybe aren't fully aware of it, what, what all goes into a music director role? Well, my experience is, I think is unique because the band, there is no separate band from the artist. So typically you'd have Justin Timberlake and you'd have like for the 2020 experience, which was one of his albums and tours. He, I think that's what it was called. He, uh, he had a full, like a full or almost orchestra for some of the songs behind him. And I think Adam Blackstone was the music director for that group, but it was basically like you have the artist and then you have the band. In my case, the band is the art, uh, is the artist. It's one and the same. So it's kind of a little bit different than your traditional music director role. Um, I think a lot of times the music director will hire the guys to come in and play in the band. Right. And he kind of picks and chooses and, and it's typically it's people he has a relation, he or she has a relationship with so that they can kind of get to the goal faster. You also know their abilities and their shortcomings. So that kind of helps you pick and choose who's going to be in that band. But in my case, it's a little bit more than just playing. Um, it has a lot to do with I guess this applies to any music director experience, but it has a lot to do with uh, personality um, kind of management and, and also figuring out what works in a live setting, but being smart about how you're going to approach it. In a lot of other instances, I see guys, you know, they got the band in front of them. The artist isn't even there. And they're like, okay, like, let's do it this way. Oh, that synth sound is a little weird. We need something a little bit more like low cut. It's too like, it's, it's cutting through too much. Or, you know, they'll kind of look at the soundscape that way and sort of tell people what to do. In my case, I can't do that. <laughs> that doesn't make sense. I'm not going to tell the artist you need to do this. It's, a, it's much more of a uh, closer relationship and a little bit of a softer approach. I think one of the things that um, has helped me also helps you work smarter and not harder is to look at, you know, in, in my case, it was like, we're trying to prepare stuff for uh, a couple of new songs on the, on the last tour. And, uh, our uh, Shannon, the drummer has a bunch of different pads in front of him and we can delegate any sound, any like electronic drum sound to those pads from, from the record. So we have that ability and then he can switch, but he's playing his live kit and his pads at the same time. 
So for us, um, it was, it's, it's a process of going through with him, what he would prefer to play. Um, in some cases I get involved with that. In some cases I don't because I'm not a drummer. You know, I understand drums. I understand music. I get it, but I'm not a drummer. So why, why am I going to, you know, kind of go through this with him? He trusts me, but I think it makes more sense for his drum tech in some ways and him to collaborate in this world, you know? Yeah. So I kind of go to the drum tech and I say, Hey man, today, like, I'm going to kind of lean on you a little bit. I'm going to need you to kind of go through this and, and, and go through it with Shannon and kind of team up with him and, and figure it out. And it kind of works that way. And it's, it's cool to, to have that kind of relationship on tour. So I kind of lean into certain people on the team to try to get the job done. That's awesome. Sorry, that's a long-winded answer. <laughs> no, that's that's a great answer. And and you mentioned that that now it kind of looks like, you know, there's there's obviously a good el- element of keyboards live. You were talking a little bit about your keyboard setup where the top is kind of, you know, your is it is it triggering samples and then the bottom is is some is more of your actual live sounds that you're playing. Yeah, so you know, some of the stuff um like for example, there's a lot of sidechain like bass stuff. And it's just sounds that I think we prefer not to recreate because it kind of doesn't make any sense. Um, so it's kind of interesting. I think if you came side stage and saw me playing, <laughs> sometimes you'd be like, what, is, what notes are you pl- is he playing right now? Because it doesn't make any sense. But what I do is uh, I basically play the notes um, that you hear on the record, all the samples are lined up to the correct notes, but of course, sometimes you can't do that because samples are overextended. So you need to hit another key. So sometimes I go, I go to the chromatic note on the keyboard to play the next sample that will continue the same note. It's a little confusing, but, um, yeah, it's basically the top keyboards, a, a trigger for all of the, um, sounds that like sidechain basses. And then the bottom keyboard is just like pianos and, certain kind of live strings that I'll just play. Are you guys <clears throat> using um, Ableton Live to, to trigger all that? Yep. Ableton's the main brain for everything. And uh, yeah, we've, I, I guess the band's been on Ableton for about seven years now. When I first started, um, they switched over to Ableton and kind of started doing this whole setup. So um, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty incredible what <laughs> what technology can do the switch of a button and everything on stage changes. It's, it's just amazing. Well, maybe talk a little bit about, um, you know, I, I know there's, there's a, there's a mentality of, you know, a lot of rock bands are, you know, it just no listener left behind, you know, a lot of the times bands have a series of, of tracks that are playing behind them to kind of supplement, maybe it's effect sounds, um, you mentioned the side chain bass. That's kind of that that kind of pumping bass sound. Those things that are literally just humanly impossible to recreate. Like a lot of bands are using tracks to pull that off live, which a lot of rock bands, you know, historically have kind of looked down on. What what is your guys' view on kind of how you integrate those with your show? And 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 there's there's obviously very real things you're playing live but then it, it's, it's all sort of working together with, with whatever tracks are, are happening. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of an interesting thing. I personally, you know, I, it's funny. I've talked to, I've talked to the guys a lot about this and it's, it's a new day. That's how I look at it. You know, it's, it's a new day. I, and there's a place for everything. Um, 
I love plug and plug and play bands. I love it. I think it's awesome. ACDC is sick. I love the idea of just plugging in my guitar and just ripping. And a lot of days I want to do that, (laughs) you know, and I love bands that do do that. I mean, I'm fans of all these bands. Um, but I'm also a a fan of what's happening in sort of the more modern era. Uh, I think one of the interesting things that we learned on the last, on the last run, something that at least I took away was, you know, we're competing with hip hop, which sounds great and clean. And there's not a lot of stuff going on. And I think that that's really fascinating because when you're talking about tracks and sort of supplemental stuff, I think at the end of the day, depending on what kind of artist you want to be and where you want to take your project, you have to compete on the stage. And sometimes that means heavy samples. Sometimes that means, you know, triggering stuff. Um, I look at a bit, one of my favorite bands in the world that I was lucky to tour with was Muse. And I love them so much. They're insane musicians, like some of the best in the world. Their sound guy, their whole team, they're incredible. Um, they're one of the best sounding live bands I've ever seen in my life. I mean, they can't play giant 100-person string sections live. Um, that's impossible, right? So when they're sampling this stuff, it doesn't, it doesn't make them any less good. It doesn't make them any less talented. It, in fact, it's the total opposite. When you go see their show, it's like a religious experience. Uh, Imagine Dragons is another is another example. It's I don't even know how much they use in their show, but like based off of their songs, I would imagine it's a it's a somewhat decent amount. Amazing band live, they're incredible. And to me, it's about translating the song. That's all that matters is the song. Translating the song live, the energy live. How can you do that effectively and best? If you you know if you have a song that has a huge huge EDM kick and you're not you don't have that effect live because you're playing some like you know tiny small kick drum i mean you're not you're not competing you know you're not bringing the song to its full potential and ultimately the audience loses so for me it's all about you know providing that value to the audience and sometimes that means you know a little bit track heavy but it doesn't mean the show suffers i think that's the other thing too it's like you still got to put on a show you can't just press play and let it happen you know there's a lot that goes into production there's a lot that goes into showmanship so i think you know, it's a full, it's a full bodied experience. And, um, you know, I, I'm like hesitant to say this, but there's been some TV broadcast shows of the full live band experience that I've seen in the last couple of years. And it's, you know, comparing it to hip hop, when you see them on the same stage coming through the same TV speakers, it's, it's not even, it's not even the same world. And it just doesn't, sound that great i don't want to hear cymbals all the time yeah i just don't you know what i mean i want to save my hearing so yeah, that's just well, my opinion but no and i i agree 100 i think you know last year's uh or i guess it was this year's grammys being you know this is totally my opinion and people will probably shoot me for it but um i just you, you could tell like when um i'm just trying to think of an example who was who was on like uh there was a moment when I think was it Aerosmith that came on and then they had just come after like Camila Cabello and all these people. And it just sounded so like, I don't know, raw or amateur. I don't even know how to, how to word it, but it's just physically impossible. Like you said, to be able to compete with the quality of, of the stuff that's coming out in the hip hop world and the pop world that is very track heavy 
when you're literally just, like you said, plug and play, press record. I mean, that stuff works great if you're at an arena and you're with 100,000 people that are screaming the song. But on TV, yeah, like you said, it completely falls flat. So I'm actually really glad you brought that up. Yeah, I think another thing to, to – that's a really good point that you brought up. Another thing to think about, I think, for people who are probably watching this and saying, I completely disagree with that. Um, I'm trying to think of the times that the hair stood up on my arm when I've seen television performances or perform, let me say this performances on TV. Okay. And there for the most part, everything has been pre-recorded. So I remember seeing like the unplugged stuff from back in the day in MTV. Um, I'm trying to even think, I think VH1 did some like, you know, classic like come back in and play your full record john mayer did something one time on vh1 that was awesome where he played continuum i think but these things are pre-recorded i think when we're talking about tv performances like the grammys or anything like that a lot of that stuff is all it's all live right so i think people forget that um you're talking about doing something on the fly a lot of times the guys behind the the mixing board for the live performances no hate towards them whatsoever. They have an insane job. They're working with all these different high-level artists all day long. My point is that it's very difficult for them to get the artist what they're used to because they don't necessarily have their front-of-house guy or broadcast guy in the room giving them pointers. Or, or maybe they do, but their broadcast guy can't touch the board because they're not part of that union thing. So people have to remember that uh, when, you know, when, um, Aerosmith goes on TV, their broadcast guy is not mixing them live necessarily, you know, and as a music director, that's something that was so challenging for me in the 2018 and 2019 years of touring with Mars, because you had to really build a rapport with these people who are broadcasting the live shows. And I could give them, you know, direction on, Hey, you know, we want sort of the low end a little bit louder. We want the symbols, not that loud, but at the end of the day, you only have so much control over these things, you know? So track heavy to and using the Grammys or any other television performance as a way to promote your song. It's almost smarter as a strategy to go in track heavy and, and approach it that way. Because at the end of the day, it's just promotion for your artistry. If you're Adele, dope. You go in with a piano and sing the hell out of the song and you totally crush it. But that's, there's not a lot of Adele's out there. There are not. And, and I think people that are purist about it are, like you said, they're shooting themselves in the foot because the average person out there who's a non-musician would never know one way or the other. They, they just think, does it sound good or does it sound bad? And if it doesn't sound like the record, they're going to assume that means, oh, they're a bad musician, you know? Exactly. I think like when you look at back, back to like the, the 80s bands, you got bands like uh, Def Leppard and Bon Jovi. They kind of did a good... I think mixture of all that stuff. I mean, look, if I'm watching Metallica, I'm a huge Metallica fan. I want it to be dirty. I want it to sound messed up and crazy, but I'm also like, if it could always sound like the black album, that'd be cool too. (laughs) Yeah. exactly. Um, But you look at rock bands like Bon Jovi, you look at bands uh, like Def Leppard, they have that mix of sample track, even backing vocals, but they're amazing musicians and they're, you know, the guitarists are all ripping live. Um, I, I think that's, yeah, it's a good mixture, but there's, there's always a balance, I suppose, but I'm always for TV. I'm always leaning the other way. Yeah. Too much, too many variables, too many, way too many. 
Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about the balance of, you know, family and personal life when you're touring. How do you, how do you manage that? It's very, very hard. Um, so I come from an Italian American background. It's all about family. It's all about the mothers. It's all about the grandmothers. Um, and it's, it's been super challenging and, and my wife as well, of course. Um, but it's been super challenging. You know, it's interesting. I've lost a lot of people while I've been on the road and that's been really difficult because I couldn't fly back from my grandfather's funeral, you know, things like that, which, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a tough thing to kind of manage in your head. But I think the thing that has helped me is constant communication. Um, I'm always FaceTiming my parents. I think I, even when I was on tour, I was speaking to them every Sunday, call my mom, um, my, my wife too. I mean, I'm always, always in direct contact with her. And, um, another thing that's helped is inviting people on the journey. I think throughout my career, you know, I didn't get along with my parents in my early twenties because they wanted me to continue college and like everyone else, you know, and, and I didn't believe in that. I just wanted to be in a rock band and, you know, and the way that I kind of fixed that relationship was I brought them on my journey. And I remember we opened up for my chemical romance in like 2005 and I was like, you guys are coming to the show. And this was like the first, you know, big show we did. And, um, and they came backstage and they're like, uh, what's going on? Then we hit stage and it was like 8,000 people. And they're like, whoa, 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 what? <laughs> this is not what I thought was going on. And I'm like, yeah, this is like, we're trying to do this, you know? And, uh, same thing when I've been on tour with Mars, it's, it's when friends are around, come out to the show. Um, friends would come out to travel to Europe and see us play in front of international crowds. And I think just having that, that, um, that energy around me has been really useful. And also, you know, I've been friends with a lot of uh, of the, a lot of friends in my life. I've been friends with them since I was like five or six. So it's, um, it's always nice to, to share that with people you've known for a long time. And that's kept me kind of sane throughout this whole thing. Yeah. I love it. Well, I can, I can certainly relate my, my decision to forego college was not super strongly encouraged by my parents back, <laughs> back in the day either. So I, I, I feel you there. Absolutely. But, uh, yeah. It's interesting too. I, I think another thing that's helped is food you know, oddly, like I, you know, you're, when you're on the road, you, you're kind of getting all different kinds of stuff, right. could be good. could be bad. Um, we were fortunate enough to have catering on the road with us, but, but you never know what you're going to get. And for me, there was something like so beautiful about going on like a Sunday or whenever we had a day off to like just an amazing Italian restaurant sitting in the corner you know, just having a beautiful meal. And it just, it, it fills me with these like emotions of home. And that kind of always brings me back. And I think that's what you, for me, that's helped, you know? Yeah, that's so true. And that's, and that, you know, you gotta be thinking about just, you know, even eating healthy thing. I mean, I'm, I'm sure, you know, once you make it to a certain level of touring and there's catering, obviously that's a different thing. But when you're starting out, you're eating gas station hot dogs and <laughs> whatever you can afford at the time. Dude, shout out to Subway for, uh, for uh, saving all musicians' life with the with the lives with the uh, five dollar foot long, that changed my life. <laughs> That's right. I I swore off Subway after my touring days Me because too. there was one tour where it was literally the quote catering every day was Subway, and I was just like, I can't. It's it it has a smell to it, no matter where you go in the world, like. That's, it's so interesting to me. All subways smell exactly the same. 
dude, <laughs> we are literally speaking the same language. It's crazy. <laughs> I could not agree with that more, but eating healthy is, is a huge part of it too. You know, you're like, you know, you're struggling with sleep. Um, so you need to, I'm very, um, adamant about, you know, hydrating and I mean, I, sh- I'm just not good at sleeping. So I, I try to stay hydrated as possible and eat as clean as possible. And it's good to be in the 30 seconds world. It's it, there's a culture of that, which is really great and working out and staying active and going for hikes. And, um, yeah, it's, it's good. Do you do, uh, do you do melatonin CBD oil and that stuff for sleep for sleep? I've taken, I've taken CBD oil recently, but the melatonin, I, I, I haven't really messed with, but I've heard it's valuable. Yeah, it worked. I'll say this. It works for my two-year-old and my five-year-old who, who, who always have a hard time sleeping. So <laughs> I'll get on that. Yeah, man. Um, I'm, I'm in. So this is obviously turning into a, a lot of really cool stuff for you. Um, you know, and you're, you've played very many roles in the music industry and you're, you're, job as a music director and musician for 30 seconds has even led to being able to write, um, some songs on, on the latest project. I believe you were a co-writer on dangerous night, hail to the victor and remedy off of the latest, uh, 30 seconds to Mars record. If I'm doing my research, right. Yep. Um, so maybe talk a little bit about that. I mean, is, is songwriting and production still something that's pretty, pretty heavy on, on your, uh, your priority list? Yeah, it's at the heart of, I think, uh, where I am in the music industry and, and what I want to continue doing. Um, I love playing music live. I love performing. Uh, I love getting on stage. It's, it's, you know, it's, I think it's a part of me. Always will be. I, every time I try to escape it, it comes back around. Um, but at the end of the day, I think songwriting and producing is, is where my heart is. I think for me, I've always had this um, desire to do things that affect a large group of people. That sounds so, you know, ego psycho, but uh, you know, I've, I don't know what that's from. Maybe it's from feeling like, you know, inadequate or not good enough or something, but you know, I've ha- I've always had this desire to kind of do something that affects people uh, on a large scale. So that was one of the most exciting things side note about, you know, joining up with Mars was that, wow, I'm going to be able to like perform and play in front of a big group of people. That's something that I've always wanted to like check off my list um, and, in, and share the music experience with people. So I think you can do that also in the songwriting sense too. And um, it's been just, you know, a great journey. Uh, I'm really doubling down on everything, especially right now and, and trying to dive in more onto the like pop and alternative side of things. Cause that's where my heart is. Um, but I, I, I love it so much. I love collaboration. And, uh, as far as the, the Mars stuff goes, it's just been uh, super grateful for all of it. And, uh, you know, very thankful that I was able to kind of go from the stage journey to the studio journey and then onto the record. And I'm, I'm thankful to Jared and Shannon for, for having me there, um, because it's been very fruitful and it's been fun to collaborate within that world. So it's, it's cool. We've gotten, you know, it's, it's crazy. I've gotten to work with, you know, uh, Halsey's been in the studio, ASAP Rocky's, you know, contributed to the record, Zed contributed to the record. It's like all these awesome, amazing artists. And I'm just very fortunate to kind of live amongst them. And it's been uh, cool. So amazing. Um, well, man, so many, so many, uh, angles we could, we could go down. Uh, I would like to 
before we dive into our lightning round, um, just a couple kind of closing questions. What's the best piece of advice you've gotten while working in the music industry? Ooh. Oh, man. That's a tough one. I think probably be your authentic self. I think that's super important for people to remember. Um, kind of what we touched on in the beginning, it's like your personality might not line up with everyone's, everyone's vibe, right? And that's okay. Because when it does link up with someone, it's, it's going to be special and it's going to be meaningful and you're going to be able to be impactful within their world. And I think trying to be somebody else is just not, it's not worth it. And you're always going to fall short. And you're also not going to value, you're not valuing yourself. You know, every, I think everyone's unique. Everyone's special. Everyone fits somewhere in the world. And I think it's really important to double down on who you are. Sometimes it's been hard for me to find who I am. <laughs> so that's a challenge for some people. Um, but uh, always go with your gut. It's a huge, huge thing. I love that. And uh, lastly, what is something that you learned while being a touring musician that you wish you would have known when you started this whole thing out? Sorry, say that one more time. What's something that you learned while being a touring musician that you wish you would have known when you were starting out? Ooh, um, man, I, I, I'm kind of stumped on that question. Um, I'm trying to think uh, it's, it's, I'm kind of drawing a blank right here for some reason. I feel like I learned a lot of the stuff when I kind of came up. Um, I guess uh, I think, you, you know, actually something that helped was more of the experience, not necessarily one pinpointing one thing, but again, going back to, I, th I think the organization and leading people, um, I think I, I wish I kind of had a little bit more knowledge of that going into it. Cause I think it would have helped me a little bit. Um, there were some situations that I was involved in that were like very challenging ones to, to get people on board and organize a group of singers and kind of teach everyone parts. And I kind of wish I had a little bit more of that. Uh, I, I wish I had done it once before so that I could whip people into shape a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Well, hey, are you uh, are you ready to dive into our lightning round? Dude, let's do this. Awesome. <laughs> what is a song that you wish you wrote? Ooh, there's this amazing song by Dua Lipa called Physical that came out recently. And it's, it's a rock song. It's a straight up rock song with different kinds of lyrics and different approach. And it's awesome. I think Jason Evigan co-wrote it with her, which would make sense. Um, I love the sounds of it. I love the... Uh, just the energy of it. It's up-tempo, which is kind of unique right now. You don't really hear a lot of it. And she killed the vocal, and it sounds amazing. So that's definitely one of them. I love that one. We work out to that one often. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, yeah, I think Jason Evigan's on that one. What, uh, what's your favorite way to spend, spend your free time? Making uh, pizza from scratch, making pasta from scratch. I'm in the kitchen all day long. I don't look like it. I could probably <laughs> use a couple more pizzas in me. but. Uh, yeah, it, I think cooking is is great. It's another form of creativity. It reminds me of my grandmother and yeah, just gets me going. Love it. Are you gluten-free or are you all just full regular regular? I'm actually give me as much gluten as possible. Gl okay. Gluten overload. I yeah, if you're Italian, you probably can't be gluten-free. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What uh 
This, well, here's another related question. What item is always in your fridge? Oh, man. Uh, there's always garlic. There's always some Pecorino Romano cheese, preferably from Sardinia. That's how we roll. <laughs> awesome. Very cool. What was the first album you bought? Uh, either Doggy Style by Snoop Dogg or 10 by Pearl Jam. And a follow-up to that, why did you buy it or them? Oh, uh, well, uh, I, I think Pearl Jam was like the biggest thing in rock at the time. And there's like, I think it's Jeremy. Is it Jeremy or is it Alive? The video of Eddie Vedder just jumping off, like stage diving from the balcony of a, of a, a live show. So when you saw that, you're like, oh, I'm, I'm getting this. And then Snoop Dogg was, had just come out and there were two things. Uh, he was, he was massive. The video of him on top of the building in LA, super sick, iconic that made you want to get it. But the cover of that album is also another thing that made you want to buy it. That's awesome. Yeah. And, and lastly, man, we're, we're, we're food heavy today. Favorite ice cream flavor. Whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, pistachio mint chocolate chip or coffee i love it our our honeymoon was in in italy and we ate so much pistachio gelato when we were there it's not even where'd you guys go uh kind of all over we just did the you know buy a train ticket and you you go wherever you want you feel like going we went to rome we did venice did pisa did florence that's amazing yeah so so fun man well, uh, Stevie, this has been an absolute blast. There's so much more that we could dive into, but I think this is a really good good place to leave it off at. We are going to be doing a quick little deep dive. Um, people, if they're interested in checking out our deep dives, can get those at madeitinmusic.com. And today, our deep dive, I want to hear from you about how musicians can ace an audition, because you obviously did that. We talked a, l- a little bit about it in the show. But um, I think there's a lot that people can learn from that. But anyway, Stevie, thanks so much for being on the show today. Really appreciate everything you had to say. And uh, I know our, I know our people are going to get a lot out of it. Uh, yeah, man. I just want to thank you, Seth. This has been awesome. And, you know, we touched on this before the interview, but I want to make sure people uh, who are listening and watching understand that, you know, there's, uh, like we spoke about, there's not a Bible coming up for musicians when you're younger. And, uh, there's not one central, you know, uh, point of information, but luckily we're in the age now where we have things like, like your show and, uh, other resources. So I just want to thank you guys for consistently putting out good information for, you know, younger musicians, uh, even seasoned people, um, uh, where they can, you know, dive in and kind of learn something. Cause it's all about, uh, spreading information and, and sharing. So thank you guys for doing what you're doing. And I, I, want people to check out the rest of your shows and do more deep dives on your work. And, uh, yeah, thank you guys for having me. And thank you. And, uh, lastly, how can people find you? Are you on social media website, all that stuff? Yeah. Um, follow me on Instagram. I will be, uh, sharing things that I'm working on with new songs that are coming out from artists that I've co-written with or produced. Um, I'm also making tons of food on there. So check me out. Instagram.com slash Stevie ILO Stevie as in Stevie wonder, but not as cool. And I L O A I E L L O. And I'm on all the other socials as that as well. Awesome. Very cool. Well, thanks again, Stevie. Really appreciate you. Thank you guys. Appreciate it.